Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's reign, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and sexual situations that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Rome, July 18th, 64 CE. The summer evening was stifling hot, but the heat of the summer didn't dampen the flurry of activities that regularly took place at the Circus Maximus. The enormous stadium was famous for holding games, chariot races, and annual celebrations all inside a single massive entertainment venue. Slaves, merchants, and entertainers frequently fought for space there when events drew nearer. Merchant and cookshops lined the circus, shouts regularly echoed across the streets, and cooking fires always filled the air with smoke and fragrant spices. However, at some point during a particularly windy night on July 18th, the smoke coming from the merchant and cookshops seemed much thicker than normal. And soon, violent licks of fire were seen emerging from one of the shops. It seems that one of the cooking fires had gotten out of control. In the crowded chaos near the venue, it spread almost instantly to other shops. Before long, it spread even further, and soon even the entire stadium was ablaze. By the morning, the fire had jumped from the stadium to nearby residential buildings. The inferno spread through homes and shops, pushing further and further throughout the city. Fire brigades scrambled to put the fire out, but it was no use. It seemed that the capital of the Roman Empire was doomed. But as Rome burned, one man was conspicuously absent, Emperor Nero. He was conveniently at his villa in Antium, miles from the capital. And as the fire tore through the center of Western civilization, he sat on his balcony, practicing his lyre and singing. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. This is our final episode on the bloody and tyrannical reign of the Roman Empire's Julio-Claudian dynasty. Today, we conclude with the fall of Emperor Nero, the young artist placed at the head of an empire due to nothing more than his bloodline. Last week, we discussed how Nero achieved power thanks to his mother's political chess games. However, in the process, Nero grew to resent his mother and eventually ordered her execution. This week, we'll follow Nero's disastrous response to the great fire of Rome and how his desire to be adored as a musician and singer put him in the deadly crosshairs of the Senate. Coming up, we'll dive into Nero's untimely demise. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. 
The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. When the Great Fire of Rome ignited in July of 64 CE, 26-year-old Emperor Nero was at the height of his power, power that was consolidated through exile and execution. Among the dead were his mother Agrippina and his ex-wife Octavia. For years, Agrippina had played a cunning political game to put her son on the throne. However, once Nero was in power, he realized his mother didn't have his interests at heart. All he'd ever wanted was to be a singer, musician, and an actor. She initially was the one who wanted political power, not him. Nero's love for his mother turned to resentment, which turned to hatred. Until in 59 CE, Nero had his mother killed. Now he was free to do whatever he wanted, even neglect governing the empire in pursuit of a career as an artistic performer. In the summer of 64 CE, Nero wanted to sing for his people, a real theatrical debut. For years, he had done small shows at the royal palace. Now he was ready to go bigger. Unfortunately, some of his advisors feared he would embarrass not just himself, but the title of emperor. Instead, they suggested he take his debut outside of Rome. So in July, Nero made his way less than 40 miles south to his hometown of Antium. But as he was preparing for his performance, a messenger came with frantic news. A fire had broken out at the Circus Maximus. It quickly got out of control and set the city ablaze. Nero dropped everything and rode back to Rome. Even he had to admit his performance would have to wait. As the flames consumed Rome for six straight days, the emergency consumed Nero. Contemporary accounts note that he tried fighting the blaze with strategic plans to contain the fire. During this time, Nero was just like any other Roman citizen, covered in soot, choking on smoke, and trying desperately to save the city from the inferno. As ancient Roman historian Cassius Dio wrote, there was shouting and wailing, children, women, men, and the elderly all together. No one could see anything or understand what was said by reason of the smoke and shouting. Nero was in the middle of chaos trying to help. For a brief moment, he looked like the leader his old mentor Seneca had always hoped he would be. But this was hardly enough to change Nero from selfish tyrant to beloved leader. Once the fire was contained, the emperor set out to rebuild the city. Unfortunately, Nero sought to recreate the city in his image. And in doing so, he earned the scorn of the citizens forever. Nero decided that one of the best places to start his revival of Rome was with his own palace. It was his delusional belief that the people would be inspired if he renovated the Golden Mansion first. He was wrong. 
The people weren't too pleased by this decision and mocked Nero's extravagance. Then, that mockery turned to fury when they learned that part of the palace renovation meant seizing several city blocks of destroyed residences. Nero appropriated the land where burned homes once stood and began construction immediately. The palace was to cover 200 acres, and Nero literally called it the Domus Aria, or Golden House. At the center of a vestibule constructed for the sprawling palace complex on the summit of the Velian Hill was a gilded bronze statue of Nero himself, standing over 100 feet tall. Dubbed Colossus Neronis, the statue could be seen from almost anywhere in the city. No one could escape Nero's gaze. Of course, all of these renovations, including the decorative gold, cost money. And soon, it became obvious that the project would be far over budget. Nero needed cash fast. But even at the height of the Roman Empire, it was difficult for an emperor to simply make money appear. And thanks to Uncle Caligula using the treasury as his own personal ATM, Nero's empire was far from its former glory under Augustus. Nero, however, had always done what he wanted, and this time was no different. In order to raise the funds, Nero increased taxes and extorted provincials. Unsurprisingly, the audacity of these moves did not go over well with Romans, and it got people talking. Many of Rome's newly homeless residents started to whisper that Nero started the fire in the first place. After all, it was a convenient excuse to clear dozens of acres for a new palace. The rumors spread through the city faster than the fire had. Nero wasn't fully aware of his reputation in the street. But he wasn't just completely out of touch with the public. Members of his own administration were also doing their best to shelter the temperamental emperor from the negative press. The head of the Praetorian Guard, Tigellinus, was a leader in this effort. Under his watch, more often than not, Nero's detractors would simply disappear. Unfortunately, despite Tigellinus's best efforts, he couldn't execute half of the city. And soon, the public outcry intensified. Before long, the rumors finally reached Nero's ears, and by now, they claimed that it was practically a known fact that Nero caused the fire. Nero was shocked, but luckily, he didn't get angry. Rather, he knew he needed to save himself. By shifting the blame to someone else. Then, perhaps the public would forget about the Golden House and the increase of taxes. Nero's eyes turned to a religious sect that was already hated more than he was. It was a small but growing cult of one man's devout followers. They called themselves Christians. The Christians had always refused to pledge allegiance to the emperor. To Nero, their persecution seemed like an easy way to rid the empire of their already treasonous presence. So, Nero declared that a Christian conspiracy was to blame for the fire. Though many historians at the time knew the fire had been an accident, 
a conspiracy theory was much more appealing. Many Romans jumped on the bandwagon, and soon Christians were a widely accepted enemy of the state. Nero's ruthless treatment of the community drove the message home. As construction on the palace continued, he had Christians crucified in the gardens. Their corpses were then set on fire to serve as torches, illuminating the gardens at night. But Nero also selflessly shared his torture of the Christians with the people. Christians became fodder for the gladiator arenas. They were tossed into the center of the ring with lions and tigers and forced to fight. Few survived the mass execution, but stories of these Christian martyrs would survive for millennia. Meanwhile, with Rome's citizens placated, Nero turned his attention back to his aborted theatrical debut. He was convinced that his people loved him. He had given them entertainment in the form of Christian persecution. Now he would entertain them with his voice. Nero craved public adulation, especially when it came to music. He'd longed for it since the days his mother refused to give it to him. Even in his late 20s, Nero was still a lonely artist at heart. As such, Nero's deepest desire was to stand in front of a crowd and earn their applause. Initially, the emperor's advisors convinced him to give a single performance in Antium. But that wasn't enough. Nero wanted to embark on a musical tour. In the spring of 65 CE, the new palace was still under construction. In Nero's head, the timing seemed perfect to turn to his love of performing. And since Nero wasn't really interested in governing, he didn't mind leaving the business of the empire to the Senate. Unfortunately, Nero's absence and consistent disregard for public opinion was about to have dire consequences. The Senate was decidedly not on Nero's side. And in their opinion, the emperor needed to die. Coming up, Nero faces an assassination conspiracy. Hi, listeners. To celebrate our favorite month, Parcast Network is releasing a slate of new shows leaning into all things spooky and spine-tingling. And now we're bringing you an original series called Superstitions, featuring the origins and impacts of our most unusual beliefs and the stories of those who dare to defy them. Every week on Superstitions, hear a new drama that illustrates the eeriness and unlocks the mysteries of humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Like holding your breath while passing a cemetery so you don't wake the dead and make them jealous. Or carrying the foot of an animal known to have an evil eye. Or using iron to keep away the devil. They may seem mystical or even completely illogical, but one thing is certain, you ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of spooky October programming to enjoy. Now, back to the story. 
By the start of 65 CE, 27-year-old Emperor Nero was on top of the world. After successfully scapegoating the Christians for the Great Fire, the emperor decided it was finally time to focus on his music career. And what better way to get things going than with a concert debut in Rome at the three-part Greek-style festival he created called the Neronia. The Neronia consisted of three sections, athletics, chariot racing, and the arts. And in the spring of 65 CE, in the musical portion of the Neronia, Nero performed on stage in Rome for the first time. He felt like a rock star, and he loved it. And as if life couldn't get any better, his wife Papea was pregnant. Nero was not only kickstarting his musical career, but securing his legacy with an heir to the throne. But that legacy was already in jeopardy. Beneath the happy facade of Nero's daily life, his base of power was crumbling. He had quelled the rumors about the fire of Rome, but the Romans were still unhappy. Killing Christians wasn't enough to distract them from the embezzlement taking place across the empire. Nero's sprawling palace proved to be more expensive than the taxes he imposed were lucrative. So, according to author Stephen Dando Collins, Nero requested donations from Rome's wealthiest families, all for the Golden Mansion. Nero knew that the patriarchs of these families always wanted to be on the emperor's good side. As such, he expected plenty of voluntary contributions to his palace fund. Unfortunately, Nero underestimated the loyalty of the aristocracy. He received just a few measly donations for his cause and seethed with anger. So, he retaliated. He decreed that the wealthiest Romans had to change their wills and leave almost everything to the emperor once they died. Many tried to bequeath at least a portion of their land and wealth to their family. But Nero wanted close to all of it. His blatant greed not only eroded the loyalty of Rome's wealthiest men, but also the loyalty of their offspring. The empire's aristocratic heirs were left with nothing but hatred for the emperor. Nero effectively destroyed any generational loyalty to him and his bloodline. But Nero wasn't concerned about that. He was thinking about today. Unfortunately for Nero, there still wasn't enough money in Rome's treasury for Nero's extravagant construction plans. So Nero did the unthinkable. He raided the temples of Rome. Inside the temples were altars to the gods. For years, citizens covered these altars with gold and valuable offerings. Much of the gold was from conquests, a tribute to the gods for victory over the barbarian hordes. These offerings were the embodiment of Roman glory, and to most Romans, they belonged to the gods. But to Nero, they were a means to an end. He ordered his men to collect all the temple valuables they could find. Naturally, when the people discovered what the emperor was doing, they were enraged. But Nero ignored them. 
He was more concerned with the events and performances of the Neronia. The Neronia were open to all artists and performers, and as mentioned earlier, Nero joined their ranks like any other participant. Of course, Emperor Nero was not like anyone else. Beyond being the emperor, he had an infamous temper. When he forgot lines or missed notes in his performances, he often threw tantrums after the show. Nobody was willing to risk angering the emperor. Which probably explained why Nero did so well during the festival. The Neronia boasted numerous different competitions and performances in chariot racing, athletics, and the arts. According to ancient Roman historian Suetonius, Nero entered in the categories of oratory and verse and won them both. With his new laurels, Nero felt like more than just an artist, he was a champion artist. Unfortunately, the power in Rome didn't see it that way. Though the Senate wasn't thrilled about Nero's increase of taxes and temple plundering, they more or less allowed it to continue in order to placate their temperamental leader. But when word reached the Senate that Nero's concerts were only getting bigger, that it was more than just a small side project, their anger boiled over. During this period, performers and entertainers were a low class. Thus, it was simply indecent for an emperor to join their ranks. While Nero basked in the glowing adoration of his audiences, he was, at the same time, defacing the throne. As a BBC retrospective explained, the outrage was similar to what would be felt today if Queen Elizabeth II became a pole dancer. It was simply too much. The Senate was finally fed up with the selfish emperor. It was time to kill him. In fact, Nero's scandalous behavior inspired multiple assassination plots. In April of 65 CE, Senate Consul Lateranus and three others began whispering among senators and high-level citizens about the emperor's so-called crimes. But they knew that it wasn't enough to simply kill Nero. They needed a replacement. And they decided on Gaius Piso, the popular Roman statesman. The conspirators also tried to loop Seneca, Nero's old mentor and advisor, into their plot. Some accounts claim that within this scheme, there was even a sub-conspiracy to kill Piso and make Seneca emperor. For years, Seneca had been living a quiet, peaceful life in the countryside. So when he heard of the plot, he quickly opted out. He was perfectly content to live out the rest of his days far away from Rome's bloody politics. Undeterred, Lateranus and his men continued plotting the logistics of their attack. Unfortunately, their disloyalty did not remain secret for long. Word of the assassination plot got back to Nero by way of a freedman named Flavius Scavenus. The news awakened a new level of paranoia in the emperor. After manufacturing love and praise, Nero was confused as to why anyone would want to kill him. Perhaps... He had let his guard down. 
There was no point in dwelling on the reasons. Instead, Nero knew he needed to get his assassins before they got to him. He dispatched the Praetorians to hunt down the conspirators. They cornered Lateranus at his home and promptly executed him. The rest either met the same fate or fled Rome. That left only Seneca to explain his meeting with the conspirators. However, Nero still had a fondness for his old mentor. When the Praetorians arrived at his villa, they were simply there to interrogate the aging teacher. Seneca admitted to the meeting with the Cabal, but claimed he had refused to participate in the plot. But the paranoia ate at Nero. He wasn't so sure he actually believed the answers Seneca gave. Making the situation worse, reportedly, was Nero's Praetorian general, Tigellinus. Tigellinus never liked Seneca, so he likely fed into Nero's paranoia. He may have told the emperor that as long as Seneca was alive, they could never be certain of his loyalty. Nero knew Tigellinus was right, so he ordered Seneca's death by suicide. When news of Seneca's suicide reached Rome, for a brief while, all talk of assassination ceased. The senators knew that if Nero could order the death of his old mentor, nobody was safe. They were right to be on guard. Nero's paranoia didn't dissipate with Seneca's death. There were only two people in the entire empire Nero trusted, Tigellinus and Poppaea. Sadly, trust wasn't enough to save the pregnant Poppaea from her husband's notorious temper. The specific details are debated by ancient and modern historians, but in the summer of 65 CE, Poppaea supposedly said something that set Nero off. Perhaps Poppaea made a light criticism of Nero's voice one night, or maybe she questioned the way Nero chose to perform a specific piece. No matter what she said, accounts claim that Nero turned on Poppaea and viciously beat her to the floor. As his pregnant wife cowered on the ground, Nero proceeded to kick her until she stopped moving. With his behavior already drawing negative attention in Rome, Nero knew that Poppaea's death would send shockwaves through the public. He had already defamed his ex-wife Octavia, who had been genuinely beloved by the Roman people. Killing the woman who took her place was unforgivable. So, as usual, Nero had to quickly clean up the problem. The official story was that she died because of a miscarriage. Nero was genuinely distraught by her death. He ordered a lavish funeral for her and even had her body embalmed, not cremated as was the norm. He loved Poppaea, and the fact that he let his temper get the better of him weighed heavily on his conscience. So much so that two years after her death while on a musical tour in Greece, Nero married a eunuch named Sporus, who bore an uncanny resemblance to Poppaea. Nero even called him by her name. From the fall of 66 CE through the beginning of 68 CE, Nero had moved his musical aspirations to the road. 
He was on tour in Greece, performing for apparently sold-out stadiums that were in fact made up of paid audiences. However, at a certain point, Nero decided to end his tour. Maybe Papea's death still weighed heavily on him. In early 68 CE, he returned to Rome and to his nearly finished Golden Palace. But even in the midst of grief, Nero, as usual, completely disregarded propriety. When he brought his massive entourage back to Italy, he did so in a grandiose spectacle called a triumph. As you may recall, triumphs were the grand parades reserved for returning generals like Nero's grandfather Germanicus. Of course, Nero was no soldier. So instead of marching through the city streets with spoils of war, slaves, or golden offerings to gods, Nero simply paraded through Antium, Albinum, and finally Rome with his 1800 laurel wreath awards he won in Greece. The Senate was disgusted. They considered Nero's so-called triumph a sickening display of his narcissism, ignorance, and tyranny. Rome had turned into a complete farce. But the triumph wasn't the only problem. Over the years of Nero's rule, the empire had literally started coming apart, thanks to a wave of rebellions. In the West, in modern-day Britain, Queen Boudicca started a long series of battles against Roman occupation. In the East, near present-day Armenia, an uprising in the Kingdom of Parthia successfully annexed a huge swath of Roman territory. There were even rumors of a coming rebellion near Judea, where the hated Christians had originated. Nero's callous, tyrannical temper was coming back to haunt him. Not that he seemed overly concerned. Nero had completely ignored the uprisings. Now, Rome was militarily weaker than it had ever been. To the citizens and the senators, it appeared that the emperor had no interest in maintaining Rome's glory. Even with the threat of execution for treason, conspiring whispers began once again. In order to save the empire, drastic measures had to be taken. Much of the Senate wanted Nero dead, and they couldn't wait any longer. They needed to kill him before he killed Rome. Coming up, Nero stands alone. Now, back to the story. At the beginning of 68 CE, the Roman Empire was falling apart. 30-year-old Emperor Nero had drained Rome's treasury to build the new palace, and he'd spent even more money on his vanity concert tour. Over the course of his rule, numerous rebellions had broken out across the empire. Unfortunately for the Roman people, their leader didn't care. Nero was happy to stay holed up in his new palace. He whiled away his days singing and playing the harp, having trysts with his numerous lovers, and simply wandering the gardens. In the process, he was making enemies everywhere. Even Tigellinus and the Praetorian Guard were alarmed at Nero's lack of concern for the state of the empire. Things finally came to a head in late spring of 68 CE, when yet another uprising hit, this time in present-day Spain. With Nero still unbothered, 
the Roman governor of the region decided to take matters into his own hands by declaring himself the new head of the Roman Senate. The governor's name was Servius Galba, and he was one of the most respected generals and statesmen in the empire. His declaration drew a wave of support from other senators. Almost overnight, a new candidate for emperor had finally emerged. Now, all they had to do was get rid of Nero. The Senate knew the key to any assassination would be neutralizing the Praetorian Guard. The emperor's personal security force could be an insurmountable obstacle or a vital ally. The Praetorian commander, Tigellinus, had always been fiercely loyal to Nero. But he was a Roman general, and he served the empire, not the emperor. An empire the emperor was letting dissolve day by day. So Tigellinus made a difficult decision and threw his lot in with the coup. On a warm night in June 68 CE, the senators quietly invited a large cohort of the Praetorian Guard to a meeting at the Senate. The clandestine gathering had only one topic, the fall of Nero. By the time the first light of dawn appeared on the horizon, the Senate and Praetorians had declared Nero to be an enemy of the state. The sentence for his crimes was obvious, death. On June 8th, 68 CE, Nero woke up in the middle of the night to find his palace completely deserted. Even his Praetorian guards were nowhere to be found. His paranoia kicked into overdrive. Nero quickly surmised that an empty palace and an unprotected emperor could only mean one thing. Somebody was coming for him. But Nero wasn't going to wait around to discover who wanted to strike the fatal blow. The emperor, still in his pajamas, fled the palace, desperately looking for help. Unfortunately, all he found were a handful of attendants who had stayed behind. One of his freedmen, named Faun, offered his villa in the suburbs as a hideout. So, using what he had in front of him, Nero ordered them to help him get out of Rome. The group rode frantically until dawn and made it safely out of the city. But Nero was still in his pajamas, and suddenly he was struck with panic. He was in no condition to go much further. People might notice his odd outfit. And what if word got out? How far behind were his assassins? To calm Nero down, his attendants pointed to Found's villa, which was nearby. But soon, they saw soldiers nearing the main road to the villa. The only way in was through a secret entrance. The plan through the secret entrance worked. But once safely inside the villa, Nero was still a nervous wreck. One of Nero's companions offered to go back to the city and find out what was happening. Perhaps all this panic was nothing. A few hours later, the courier returned with dire news. The Senate had condemned Nero to death. Soldiers were scouring the countryside looking for him. And as it turned out, their escape had been witnessed by plenty of citizens. However, there was worse news. 
the Senate had ordered Nero's execution be carried out by an ancient method. The emperor was shocked and confused. He had no idea what an ancient method of execution meant. Nero turned to one of his attendants and asked if they knew. They did, and it wasn't going to be quick. The vilified emperor would be stripped naked and paraded through the streets of Rome. Then, after his humiliation, he would be taken to a public arena and beaten to death with rods. For a man who had only ever wanted to be adored by the public, this humiliating execution was the worst possible nightmare. When the group saw how distraught Nero was, they humbly suggested that suicide might be a better option. After all, Romans still considered suicide to be a noble death. Nero thought of Seneca. It seemed he had no other choice. He tearfully asked for a dagger. His hand trembled uncontrollably, so Nero requested if Epaphroditus, his private secretary, could help steady it as he put the dagger to his throat. With a deep breath, Nero plunged the blade into his own neck. As the blood poured forth, according to Cassius Dio, the emperor looked up at one of his men and said, What an artist dies with me. On the morning of June 9th, 68 CE, Emperor Nero was dead. Nero left no heir to his throne when he died. He was the last of the Julio-Claudian line, a royal ancestry dating back through Augustus and Julius Caesar. That storied ancestry meant many Romans mourned his death, even if they had hated him while he was alive. And even if his reign, like the several tyrants before him, had proven that the right bloodline doesn't make a good leader. Mourners left wildflowers on his grave in the months and years following his death, a fitting tribute to a man who preferred to think of himself as a sensitive artist rather than an emperor. Meanwhile, the Senate installed a new emperor, Servius Galba, the man who led the assassination cabal. Unfortunately, he was unable to quell the unrest across the empire. Less than a year into his reign, Galba was assassinated. It appeared that Rome's troubles weren't simply due to Nero's inept governance. Ruling an empire was no small feat, and Nero's supporters pointed to the power vacuum he left behind as evidence. The young emperor was a selfish and foolish leader, but the demise of the empire wasn't solely his responsibility. It ultimately took about a year of civil war before a new emperor reunited the Senate and the rebellious regions of the empire. Nero may have been as much a product of the Roman Empire's failings as he was the monster who brought it to its knees. Still, in the end, the arguments of Nero's supporters have been drowned out by the complaints of his detractors. His legacy is one of egocentric, anti-Christian injustice and violence, of tyranny, and of the pride that comes before the fall. There are no more wildflowers on his grave, 
and there's no one left to indulge his dangerous delusions. Thanks for listening to Dictators. We'll be back next week to begin our new season on Marxist-Leninist-Maoist dictators in Asia. Fittingly, we'll start with Chairman Mao Zedong. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other originals for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Dictators was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hang a horseshoe above your door, keep a rabbit's foot in your pocket, and follow Superstitions free on Spotify. Listen every Wednesday for the surprising backstories to our most curious beliefs and thrilling tales that illuminate the mystical eeriness of our favorite superstitions.